I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You talked about um, healing. Let, let's start there. What, what are you healing from, Gethin? A, a life of trauma. Ten years ago, a man who'd gone down a path leading to a pattern of self-destruction realised he needed to change. Gethin Jones. Good afternoon, Gethin. Where did that lead? So you're inside, you're doing your first custodial sentence. It's two weeks after my 14th birthday. And going into that prison, I was terrified. Yeah, terrified. Inside, yeah. I had fully grown men screaming in my face, telling me I was a waste of space. I'd let down my family. I'd let down my community. None of them knew I was in children's homes. I remember being stripped naked, naked, and being given a card with a number, M33681 Jones. They said, that's all you are in here. You're just a number. You do not exist. Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the question, who deserves a second chance? Who has the power to grant it? And what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. As a child... Gethin Jones was highly sensitive and struggled with feelings of being lost and overwhelmed. He didn't know how to deal with his emotions and resorted to negative behaviour. Eventually, he became uncontrollable and was taken away from his family and placed in the care system. His experience sent him spiralling down a path of self-destruction that resulted in a 20-year relationship with the criminal justice system. During this time, Gethin spent eight years in prison and developed a drug dependency. However, his last prison sentence proved to be a turning point in Gethin's life. He went through a transformative process that changed his personal and professional outlook. Now, he firmly believes in his potential and uses his experience to help others unlock their own potential. He works with prisons, charities and local authorities to create high-performing individuals 
in teams. Well, it's really nice to see the real person. I see so many pictures and posts of you, but it's great to see you in person. How are you today? Yeah, yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well, mate. Uh, I've, I've just come back off a long trip to uh, Greece. So uh, I got back Saturday, so I'm reclimatizing. I saw you up a mountain. Was it a mountain you were up? I, I, I thought I saw a post from you somewhere saying that you'd gone to Kilimanjaro. So I thought you were kind of daring death. <laughs> no, not Kilimanjaro yet. Kilimanjaro's on the cards. But uh, uh, no, I was, so I've done a few mountains. Whenever I go to a Greek island, I always like to go to the highest point and then be able to get a real overview of the island. But also as well, you can see out all of the other islands and then you can get a real feel for where you are in the Aegean Sea is where I was, do you know what I mean? So. Sounds like you've done it a few times then. Yes, well, travelling has been quite a big part of my uh, my healing. You know, I suppose you'll kind of understand it as well anyway yourself. It's, you know, for years I used to sort of, sort of like uh, see places through magazines. Yeah, and I never believed I'd be able to get to them places. So now whenever I go and experience that view or that uh, that that heat and all of it, I just feel like, yeah, done it. I can see behind you, you've got Getting Jones Unlocking Potential. You talked about um, healing. Let, let's start there. What, what are you healing from, Gethin? Uh <laughs> So I suppose really uh, a life of trauma. And I suppose for me, it started from birth. Yeah, it's like I, I was born into uh, a family of trauma. And, uh, and I was unrecognized and undiagnosed for many many years so I didn't actually start to look at who I was or what the underlying issue was until I was uh, my early 30s so so literally trauma just built on trauma because all of the responses to my life that came out of my behavior and my actions caused more pain more trauma uh, so yeah so I'm just healing from uh, 35 years of pain when, when you say born into trauma, I mean, that sounds quite quite dramatic and quite scary, actually. And trauma can mean different things for different people. When you say born into trauma, what do you mean? I always say I was born into a dysfunctional family, yeah, but I don't believe there's any functional families out there. They're all dysfunctional to a point. But what it meant for me was my mum was a care leaver, so my mum come through uh, the care system. Uh, she was also a single parent uh, with four children and she also had learning difficulties and that meant she wasn't able to give me the love care and nurture that I needed to develop as a human being alongside of that I had an alcoholic father uh, within the house as well uh, so it's very kind of unsettled and and when we talk about uh, attachment and I've done a lot of stuff about attachment is I had no emotional attachment to my mum ever you know I was first taken out of the home at the age of uh, two uh well three two to three it was uh but but uh, and what happened was uh, my mum got up one day uh and said that she was going to the shop and she just left and uh and she so she could get away from my dad uh so we were then put into a, a foster placement you know uh but when you talk to, talk to people when they were taken away from a family at a very young age they, they kind of remember this stuff but i have no recollection of it recollection of it you know so i kind of think there wasn't any kind of uh uh, emotional attachment with me mum uh, but I ended up going back home and then uh, uh, me and my brother were taken away again to the care uh, foster placement when we were five because uh, my mum had a nervous breakdown uh, and also she was pregnant from another man and this man died so uh, my mum wasn't in a great place 
But also I remember then as well, being in this foster placement at the age of five, and I had the same, no no recollection of wanting or needing my mum at the age of five, not wanting or needing it. But I remember the experience because I had these little baby chickens, these little yellow chickens. And I remember these chickens vividly, yeah, just like amazed by them and wanting to touch them and feel them and just be around them. But no want or need for my mum at the age of five, uh, which tells the story. That, that's a really sad start, actually. But when people end up in, in care homes... It can, it can go, I think, one or two ways. Often the people that I engage with, it goes the negative way. What, what was it that, that you experienced in the care home that then led on to whatever it is we're going to talk about? So I was at home with my brother, yeah, and my brother was the closest person to me, yeah. Do you know, I love my brother, Dave. And and we were like thick as thieves, yeah, literally, you know. Uh, and what happened was they they took my brother away from me when I was nine years of age, yeah. I just remember coming home one day and my brother was gone. Uh, and on that day, I lost the most important person in my life. And I was, my behavior was already kind of coming out. I was already shoplifting, running away from home and doing all of the sort of stuff linked to sort of uh, my environment. Uh, and then what I started to do was I started to ask to be put into the children's homes, yeah, because I wanted to be back with my brother. And I thought children's home were going to give me what I wasn't having at home. I didn't know what I wasn't going to have, but I knew that I'd probably be better off in children's homes than I would at home. So I was quite bright as a child. When I got to the children's homes, two things happened. The first thing was they didn't reunite me with my brother. I understand why, because I worked within that field. My brother was very settled. I was very unsettled. So they didn't put us together because I could have taken him down the wrong path. But they never, ever facilitated the relationship. So I didn't see my brother until I ended up leaving school post-16. But then when I got into the children's homes, you know, there was no love. There was no care. There was no nurture. It was just sort of like, it was just about control. Yeah, just about people just wanting to control me. And, and I just kind of like, I just voted with my feet you know, uh, and, and it just kind of sent me on a spiral, you know, because uh, I didn't want to be there and I didn't want to be at home and I had nowhere to go. So I was literally like running away and living on the streets and towns and cities across the south of England at like 12, 13 years of age, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was, there, there, just, there just wasn't anything there. There wasn't anything there that I wanted or needed uh, and I just, I, I just went on my own. Why, why didn't the authorities, I mean, you're so young at that age uh, and impressionable. So w- where were the authorities at this point? I mean, it's one thing you wanting to be on the street and, and going in the direction you want to go. In, but where were the authorities at this point sort of getting you back where you need to be? So, and I see this similar today as well. Not a lot has changed. But what it was was uh, people focused on the behavior, not the person. Yeah, they just focused on the behavior, you know. So it was all about what I was doing wrong. Yeah, it's you, you, you. I was bad. I was naughty. I was no good. I was, it was my fault. Everything, yeah, was on my shoulders. And there was no therapeutic help then, yeah. No counselors. I didn't see any child psychologists. I didn't see anybody at all. You know, uh, I can remember at the age of 14 uh, being in, put into secure accommodation. So I was in a secure unit. And I was put into this secure unit on what they called a place of safety, yeah, to protect me from myself. Uh, because I was actually sniffing glue, so solvent abuse. I was sniffing glue and, uh, and running across motorways, you know. Uh, so they locked me up for my own protection. But even in there, I didn't see any kind of psychologist. It was just about removing me from the environment, yeah, and, and constraining me, you know. And, and as soon as they let me out of there, poof, I was just gone again. But yeah, I was always to blame. 
Yeah. And then what would happen was uh, uh, my behavior just got punished and criminalized, you know, all the time. You know, so I got moved from one home to another to another. I was labeled. I was a bad influence. I led people astray. And yeah. And, you know, and, and it just kind of sent me on a cycle. You know, my, my first custodial sentence, the first time I got locked up in prison was when I was 14. You know, you had to be 14 before you could go to prison. Two weeks after my 14th birthday, they locked me up. What was that for? Uh, that was for uh, burglaries. Uh, so uh, house burglaries. Uh, you know, I'm not proud of it, but that's what it was. Uh, but I was in another children's home uh, in a place called Leon Solon, which is in the south of England. And the only thing that they had in this little tiny little fishing uh, seaside uh, town uh, was an arcade. You know, uh, there was an older lad that was in there. Uh, he was uh, probably about 14, so I was 13 at the time. And he was di- addicted to fruit machines. Uh, guess what? I became addicted to fruit machines quite quickly. Uh, and he had a solution to be able to get money for the fruit machines, and that was burgle houses. Yeah, so guess what? I went with him and I was burgling houses, you know. And then some of the other kids in the home were like, well, what are you doing? We're burgling houses. We're playing fruit machines. Guess what they started to do? Burgle houses, playing fruit machines. Yeah, I actually got banned from Leon Solent at the age of 13. Yeah. I remember one day I was, I was like, uh, I was meant to be going to school when they said, oh, uh, you're not going into the school today. You need to go upstairs. And I went, okay. And I went upstairs to my room and there's a staff member, yeah, packing all my stuff in a box. And I'm like, what's going on? They said, uh, you're going. Yeah, you're not, you're not staying here anymore. You know, uh, the police don't want you in the community. And, uh, and then I got moved to this other home called Glen House. And Glen House was, uh, it was, it was kind of like the children's home where they put kids that they couldn't do anything else with. So it had open units on there, secure units and education on site. And, um, yeah, and that became my new home. Why, why did it go in that direction for you? I'm, I, I'm sure there are lots of kids who go through the care home and go through traumatic experience of being disowned by their parents, not having a stable environment. Why do you think you became so disruptive if if that's the right word and i say you but you know listening to what you said where everybody had pointed the finger at you rather than addressing the problem the overlying problem why did you take the the, the bad path if you like i don't think it was the bad path so to speak uh, i just didn't know any other path yeah so it's uh, uh, uh I, I'll, I'll quote ian smith actually a barrister in scotland yeah and he was working with a youngster yeah uh, this youngster is about 14 years of age and and the judge wanted to lock him up and he said the judge said uh, we need to lock this lad up because he's come off the rails he's had enough chances and ian's gone i really hear what you're saying your honor he said, but what if there were no rails? What if there were no rails? And I believe because of uh, my, my, my attachment, which is from birth, and I struggle with attachment even to this day, I, I just try to learn and survive on my own instincts, yeah, which meant that I would learn from whoever was around me yeah, and I would mimic and copy their behaviours so that I could survive. So if I just explain as well with that 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 lad that, that taught me how to play the fruit machines and burgle, I remember being on the run with him uh, at the age of thirteen, and I remember being so hungry that my pain, my, I had pain in my stomach. Yeah, it's, it's twisting in on itself. Yeah, uh, he then took me to a shop and we stole raw jelly. Yeah, raw jelly, and he's like, "Eat this, Geff." Yeah, I'm eating this raw jelly. Yeah, and it swells in your tummy. You know, at the age of 13, I'm learning how to survive and overcome hunger pains. And I'm doing that from the people that are around me, you know. So, uh, 
you know, and, and it's funny actually, because this is like, because of the shift as well. Now uh, I met an American years ago and he was doing some work with me in Old Stoke prison. And he said this little, little, little verse to me and I'll, I'll never forget it. And I'll share it with others when I work with them today. And it says, what you see, you learn, what you learn, you practice, what you practice, you become, but what you become isn't always what you're meant to be. And that was me. You know, I just saw, learn, practice and become. And I was a product of the system. Before you got to where you are now, understanding these dynamics in your life, you talked about going to a young offenders institution or whatever it was, a ball store, whatever it was at the day. Where did that lead? So you're inside, you're doing your first custodial sentence. How did that manifest? Tell me a bit about what your life was like after that first experience. I mean, did prison work? Did the institution or the secure centre, did it work? No, if, if I'm honest with you, that sentence broke me. It absolutely broke me. Okay. Uh, but I'll explain why uh, in a moment. But first of all, I just want to say I, I met a prison officer. I was doing a talk at uh, Portland uh, and I was doing a talk in the visits room, which was the same visit room I first met my dad in when I was 17 years of age. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, but yeah, so I was, uh, but what he, what he said, he came up, he was very moved by my story. And then what he said to me, because uh, I went into what was called detention centers. And back in them days, they were what they called short, sharp shock. We're going to scare you straight. Okay. Um, and what he said to me afterwards, because he was very moved and he said, I really struggled working in them kind of environments. He said, but the truth is, is they were not made for people like you. Yeah. Because you were already broken. Yeah. You were already broken. And when he said that, I really understood what he said. So if I just explain what happened when I went in there, it was two weeks after my 14th birthday. And going into that prison, I was terrified, yeah, terrified inside, yeah, because I knew what happened in there. I knew about the violence, the intimidation and the bullying, yeah. And I was a 14-year-old child. And I say child because I remember when my own son turned 14, it made me realise just how young I was, okay. And I'm only small anyway, but I was tiny then, yeah. So I remember getting out of this police car. I see my first ever prison officer, yeah, because it's before the days of the sweat boxes. And in them days, they had peaked caps, they had like blue shirts, big shiny boots, proper size, amazing type. And this bloke's just gone, boy, get here. Me being me, I'll just strut it over. <laughs> I'm not going to let him see that I was scared. And he's just looked at me, he's gone, when you're in here, you don't walk, you don't run, you fucking fly. And he just threw me into reception. And my feet did not touch the floor for the next two hours, yeah. I had fully grown men screaming in my face, telling me I was a waste of space. I'd let down my family. I'd let down my community. None of them knew I was in children's homes. I remember being stripped naked, naked, and being given a card with a number, M33681 Jones. They said, that's all you are in here. You're just a number. You do not exist. Yeah, within every single interaction, you just knew that if you did not comply, violence was going to be the outcome. And I can remember at the end of that two hours, yeah, being put into the cell. And I remember that night, yeah, putting my head on the pillow and I had the blanket over my head. And I cried. I cried into that pillow. And I wanted someone, just anyone, to come and take me away. And no one came. No one came. And at that point in my life, something in here broke. And something in here said... I was never going to trust another living soul. The only person I could depend upon was me. And I was no longer going to play your game. 
And then I just calls it, I went on like a 20-year self-destruct after that point because I wasn't listening to anyone. Yeah, all bets are off. Yeah, if this is all you've got, bring it on because I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And that's what I did. You know, and, 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 and for the grace of God, I'm alive. Yeah, Where I'm did alive. it lead you, though? At that moment where you decided you were going on this self-destruction, you mentioned 20 years of self-destruction. Where did it lead, Gethin? The depths of hell. <laughs> uh, but I did, I did, I did, I, I planned to be a success. I didn't plan to be unsuccessful. I was just going to be a success, but in my own way, yeah. In my head, I was going to be a successful uh, criminal, uh, gangster, whatever you want to call it. You know, I remember reading books uh, uh, about Ronnie and Reggie Cray and Roy, uh, uh, Frankie Fraser and Roy Shaw. And they were my heroes, you know. That's who I wanted to be. Uh, but the reality was a little bit different. <laughs> Is uh, you know, I ended up spending uh, eight years of my life in total behind the door. You know, uh, I became a, an intravenous heroin user. Um, just to say that as well, I was introduced to heroin in prison. I was introduced to crack cocaine in prison. Uh, you know, I spent time on the streets. I spent time in the homeless hostels. I destroyed every relationship that came my way, yeah, because I fundamentally, I'm a nice bloke, yeah, and people did want to love and care for me, but I was incapable of maintaining any kind of human relationship. And what would happen if people got too close, I would just naturally hurt them, yeah, and it was my way of protecting and keeping me safe. So, yeah, so I ended up just sort of like um, I became what was called a gyro junkie, I couldn't rob, I couldn't steal, I was just uh, waiting for that next bit of money so I could just have a fix. I was begging off beggars, you know, it was like, it was just a pitiful place, yeah. I used to wake up every morning wanting to die, yeah, wanting to die, yeah, it's just, yeah. Uh, and and that was because, you know, there had been so much hurt, so much pain, I was just, I was just incapable of being able to sort of like, I wanted help, but I just I just couldn't take it. I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't because I, I just I was so burnt and beaten by this system. What was the longest prison sentence you got? Uh, so the longest sentence I had was uh, a four year sentence. So uh, and that was on uh, what they call the old rule. So I'd done two year, eight months out of that sentence. Um, uh, but that sentence was probably uh, the one that kind of saved my life. If I'm honest, you know, it, it did save my life to a certain extent. And, uh, you know, uh, because I kind of knew that something was seriously wrong. Yeah, you know, I was, I was 29 years of age. You know, I remember being in a cell, just got caught with an ounce of heroin. You know, uh, I was withdrawing off of heroin, crack, Valium, Tamazepam, alcohol, you name it. The, the whole lot was coming out of me. You know, and I was just a wreck of a man. I had open abscesses, you know, I was bruised, I was battered, I was beaten, you know, and uh, and I just knew that something had to change. Yeah, I knew that something had to change, but I didn't know what that was, you know, because people always used to say to me, oh, you need a change, Giff, you need a change. Yeah, and I used to think, yeah, right, changing what? Yeah, because I struggle with the word rehabilitation. Yeah, I'll just explain this quickly. Yeah, so, re you know, if you break your arm, okay, or break your elbow, you, you go to the hospital, yeah, they rehabilitate it, do some physio so it works again, yeah. What if it never worked in the first place? Yeah. What are you rehabilitated it to? Yeah. Rehabilitation doesn't even come into what I went through. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's an insulting word. Yeah. Because I had to change every single thing about me. So when people used to say you need a change, I'm like, changing the what? I don't know anything else. I don't know what you're talking about. 
you know. And it was kind of funny, yeah, right? <laughs> so uh, I'm manipulating myself, yeah. So in, in my head, yeah, I was like thinking, well, I need to get a shorter sentence, yeah. So what I do, I do a load of negative drug tests, yeah. So I'll get a result and a touch at court. So I was looking at a seven-year sentence, yeah. So anyway, the judge bought into it, yeah, and he's gone to me. He's gone, I can see you're trying to help yourself. He said, so uh, I'm going to try and give you a sentence that will help you rather than damage you, yeah. So I'm going to give you four years rather than seven. I'm like, yeah, quid's in. Yeah, I'm done all right. So anyway, um, I then uh, think, right, so I need to get a handle on this gear. Yeah, so I heard about these rehabs, yeah, because these were new in jail. They started to have these rehabs in jail. I thought, maybe I'll go on one of these rehabs. And in my head, this is why I went on to the rehab, Brad, this is truth, yeah. In my head, I'm like thinking, right, if I can get a handle on the gear, when I get out, I can just sell it and not use it. Yeah, that was the only reason I went on the rehab. Yeah? No other reason, yeah, just get an idea and then I can just sell it and not use it, yeah. And then I can remember, yeah, I went on there, yeah, and uh, they asked me to listen to this fella speak. Yeah, they asked me to listen to this fella speak, yeah. And all I'd ever seen was my life. Anyway, I've, I've walked in this room, this fella's walked in. I'm looking at him thinking, who are you then? What do you know about me, mate? What do you know about my life? You know, I've got the prison shoulders on, been down the gym, I'm looking all like this. Anyway, he just started to share, yeah, and he started to tell his story. When he told his story, I identified yeah, with his life. And then what he did was then he started to talk about this new life. And he talked about he had a family. He went on holidays. He had a job. He had a car. He had a flat. And I remember my jaw just hitting the floor because I didn't think that stuff was possible for people like me. Yeah. And on that day, he gave me hope. Yeah, he lit a fuse, yeah, and it took a long time for it to come to fruition, but he showed me the final destination, yeah, and that's what the hope was, you know. And it's funny, actually, because I'm, I'm working with an IPP prisoner at the moment, yeah, um, uh, called Jamie, and he's, he's, he's 16 years in, yeah, and his tariff was only two and a half years. But he said to me, he said, Geoff, he said, when you came in to see me, when you came in and spoke, he said, you gave me hope. And he said, do you know what hope stands for? And I went, no, what? He went, Hearing other people's experiences. That's yeah. so good. I use the word hope all the time and I've never put that alongside it. But what made you listen in the same way you talk about this 16 year old that you're mentoring at the moment? What made you listen at that moment that you walked into that rehab? Because up until that point, you've manipulated your whole life. And as you say, get off the heroin so you could become a drug dealer rather than a user. What made you listen when you walked into that room? Because as you say, you went in there with the prison shoulders. What does this guy know about me or anybody else in this room? What What made you listen at, at that point? Because I've seen so many of you get in prison and on the outside, and, and some are just not in that position where they're ready to listen to someone like the guy that you listened to that gave you this hope. And I love that acronym. It's, it's brilliant, actually. I'm going to nick it and I'm going to use it because it's a brilliant one yeah hearing other people well I, I have created a program as well now called the hope program hearing other people's experiences yeah so uh but yeah but i always credit it to jamie yeah so if you ever do share it say, say it comes from an ipp prisoner called jamie yeah because well, always... i want to meet jamie so somehow some way you've got to introduce me to this kid because if he's 16 and he, oh, he's done 16 years in prison he's done 16 years in prison right so yeah brilliant i'd love to meet him actually 
Yeah, definitely, 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 definitely. So <laughs> that was the first step, yeah. So uh, I didn't actually complete that rehab, yeah. I got kicked off of that one. And then I went back on it again, then they kicked me off it again. Uh, in total, I've done eight different rehabs, yeah, eight different rehabs. Uh, so if you think about uh, what my life was like, I completely mistrusted the system, yeah. So if you think about, like, uh, victims and perpetrators, yeah, uh, the reality was, was I had to go to my perpetrator to get fixed, yeah, because it's the system that I blamed, yeah, okay, it was the system that I blamed. So I then had to go to them. So I had this massive mistrust. So what I did was I kind of done what I do, I call it in bite-sized pieces, yeah, bite-sized pieces. So I just kept learning stuff. Uh, but what I've realized as well, and this is where the change come, is there's a transition. So what happened there was it was the first time I started to ask for help. Yeah, so I was asking for help. Yeah, but there's another transition, and this is when you actually start to change. It's when you get to a point of accepting the help. Yeah, okay, so I was asking for it, but I wasn't accepting it. And the reason why I wasn't accepting it was because I still didn't, still didn't trust the system. Uh, and this is what I do now with people in prison is the reality is, is if you say to me now, Giffen, do you trust the system? I go, no, <laughs> broke, yeah, broke in a bad way and it does more damage than that. But what I do trust is individuals that work within it. And that's where the transition came from. When I kind of shifted my mindset from thinking, stop looking at that and look at these people here. Yeah, and it's these people, yeah. So Harry is one person, yeah. You then got Stuart, that's another person. Bob Marshall, that's another person. Joe Purdy, that's another person. These individuals, yeah, they're the people that were the stepping stones that supported me to my transition and change. And and who are these people? Uh, so uh, so Harry, uh, <laughs> this is a mad one. So he used to uh, shot heroin on the street corners uh, over in uh, Brooklyn. Yeah, done lots of prison over there. Uh, he then found recovery and then somehow blagged his way into the UK uh, and then was working in Elstoke Prison on a drug wing. Yeah, so that, that, that's Harry. Uh, Stuart uh, Degville was my personal officer and he actually worked on the uh, on, on, on that unit, Chevel unit, as did Bob Marshall. Uh, you've then got Joe Purdy, who was uh, my uh, one of my substance misuse stroke probation officers within the community. Yeah, so these these are just people that that, that just had a huge impact. And what they did, uh, so people say, uh, uh, what's the difference? And I always say, you know, they just treated me as a human being. <laughs> Yeah, simple yeah as, as a human being you know so and when I train up professionals I always say to people yeah you're a human being first and a professional second okay uh, the trouble today is most people lead with their professional yeah, and leave their humanity outside yeah um you know what I say is uh, you could be a human being first but act in a professional way yeah it's, it's not rocket science you know uh, but yeah you talk so articulately about where you're going and getting to at the moment, but and you talk about going on eight drug rehab programs, spending you know many years of your life in prison, you, you know. But you started to listen. You started to listen to people who, who were giving you the right hope. You're 29. You get out of prison. Was it prison and your experience in prison and the people you met in prison that made you decide that on this occasion, when you are released, you're going to be a different person? Yeah, so if I just explain, so I, I got out when I was uh, 32, yeah, on that sentence, yeah, so I got out when I was 32. If I just explain, yeah, before that sentence, yeah, this is God's honest truth, when you talk about belief systems, 
I believe my life would never be worth anything more than a prison cell, a bag of drugs, yeah, and a council estate, yeah. I accepted that as my life, yeah. At the end of that sentence, I knew my life was worth more than a prison cell, yeah. I knew my life was worth more than a prison cell. But I was completely institutionalised, yeah. I was completely institutionalised, yeah. So if you saw me in prison, yeah, I wasn't one of them people in jail that ran around the wings trying to get drugs, yeah. That wasn't me in jail. Yeah, what I would do is I'd use drugs the same way as people use beer out here. Yeah, if somebody got something at the weekend, I'd have like a little party at the weekend and blah blah blah, and, and I'd be fine. When I came out, that was when I had my problem. Yeah, because I was put into a world I truly didn't understand and didn't feel that like I belonged and fitted in, and that's when the drug use would go off the wall. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what it was was uh, so. When I came out, I knew I was worth more than a prison cell, but I had a lot, a lot of work to do. Yeah, a lot of work to do. And then what happened was I went through a three-year process uh, in the community of stopping drugs, taking drugs, stopping drugs, taking drugs. Yeah, so I've done a few rehabs in the community. So I've done uh, that. I've done the four in prison, and I've done four in the community. And uh, and. So I've done about three years in the community of bouncing backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And for me, that was like a living hell. Yeah, that was worse than prison. Yeah. All right. Because what happened was I was sat in the middle. Yeah. So what happened? I knew because of the work I've done with, uh, emotionally and mentally, I didn't fit in that world anymore. Yeah. But I also didn't feel like I fitted in that world. Yeah, so I was in no man's land, yeah. I was in a prison of the mind that was worse than any physical prison I'd ever been in my life, yeah. And that was at that point when I woke up every single day and wanted to die, yeah, because I was incapable, yeah, of earning a £10 note for a bit of gear, yeah, because I was so fearful of the consequences because I knew that I couldn't go back and do another prison sentence. I couldn't do it, yeah, so... Yeah, I was just in this mental torture, yeah, and uh, and what it was is, so I talk about spiritual awakenings, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual, yeah, so Joe Purdy, the lady that I spoke about, yeah, Joe Purdy was a huge part of my journey, and, and, I've, and I've written about her in my book, which is uh, uh, about the transition and the change, but what happened was, I woke up, yeah, it was just a normal day, I woke up in my head, yeah, and just thought, no, I can't do this again, yeah, I was clucking, yeah, I needed a bit of gear, my head was just completely done, I just wanted to die, why am I awake, why am I even alive, yeah, and then I had to walk down to go and get my methadone from the chemist, yeah, I remember walking down to get my methadone, and then on the way back, I got my head looking down, and I'm looking at the floor, yeah, because that's what you do in them words, you're just looking at the floor, and all of a sudden, I heard this voice, yeah, and it's Joe, okay, and I remember looking up at her, and she just looked at me, and she went, Geffen, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm all right, I'm all right. Yeah. And she literally, she just looked in my eyes, and she just went, Geffen, you're not okay. You need to book yourself in somewhere. That's all she said. And I swear to God, at that moment, something happened. And it wasn't I just heard her words, I felt her words. Yeah, I felt what she said. Yeah, I trusted what she said. And the only way I can explain it, it was like I had all of these pieces of a jigsaw. Yeah, and they all came together at one point. Yeah, and it just spout one word and it said action. Geffen, you have to put in the work in to get this done, but people will help and support you. Yeah. And on that day, something shifted in my mind. Yeah, I knew I was going to stop taking drugs. 
I knew I was going to live a different kind of life. And it came from that one sentence. But that one sentence was a sentence of over three years of consistently just being there. Yeah. And that's the power of the human. Yeah, human. She wasn't even my worker at that point, you know, but it was just I felt what she said and it shifted. Um, and uh, in in uh, in the twelve steps, uh, you get some people uh, and they call it um, a gift of desperation. Yeah, a gift of desperation. And I believe that's what it was as well. I had that gift of desperation. There was some kind of crack in my soul, and she just entered it. <laughs> What did you do then? So there was that moment, that click where you knew you had to take action. You knew. What did you do? And how did it change your life to the man you've become today? Well, so it is like I was just I was just like a man possessed. Yeah. So uh, I, I had a drug treatment worker. Yeah. I went down there. Yeah. And uh, and, and I just said, I need to, I need a book into a detox. And they said to me, they went, uh, it's going to take about three, four weeks. I said, don't care, just get me booked in. Yeah, just get me booked into this detox, yeah. And then what I also started to do is uh, you've got like fellowship meetings like Narcotics Anonymous, yeah. Uh, so what I started to do, I started to go to Narcotics Anonymous meetings whilst I was using, which is something I'd never done before. So I started to build a bit of a network with people, yeah, telling them about what my plans were. They're like, Geff, we can support you, yeah, we can get in, get uh, uh, whilst you're in there, yeah. I also started putting some boundaries for myself as well, yeah? The first boundary was I wasn't going to take a phone. So I knew on a bad day a phone would take me out. I wasn't going to take any money in there because I knew on a bad day a £10 note would be enough to take me out, yeah? People in the fellowship said, we'll tell you what, we'll bring up your toiletries, Geffen. We'll bring up your tobacco, yeah? So they kind of held me and they nurtured me. Uh, the other thing that I did as well was, uh, I, is uh, the way I can explain it, yeah, well, it was I had an ego that was here. Yeah, and I had self-esteem and confidence that was through the roof, through the floor. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it was my ego that stopped me from getting any kind of recovery. And somebody gave me a really good tip. They said, Geff, they said, when you go into these sessions, yeah, when you, because I'd always go into a session, I'd go, what's this? They go, relapse recovery. I go, ah, I've done that before. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work, did it, Geff? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I kind of, uh, so somebody said to me, they said, when you go into the room, yeah, right, just sit there and in a little mantra in your head saying, I don't really know a lot, I need to learn. I don't really know a lot. I need to learn. And that's what I do. Every single interaction, every single room I went into, I don't really know a lot. I need to learn. Uh, and there was a beautiful lady in that detox as well. I need to mention her, Hillary. Yeah. And Hillary had watched me go through detoxes since I was like 20. So what was I? I was 35 then. The first time she met me was when I was 26. Yeah. And, um, and she said, she went, she went, Geffen, she went, I remember seeing your name come up on the board and like, oh no, not again. Not again, she because she was murders. She said you'd come in, yeah, you'd cause absolute chaos over three days, you'd disappear, and then it would take us like a week to settle the unit back down. And she went, and I just knew when you came in, there was just something completely different about you. Yeah, something completely different. Uh, and that was that power in the mind and the shift, you know, but it comes down to people. And, and that's the interesting thing. And I bang on about that all the time. Somebody in the right place giving you the right opportunity or listening to what you're going through. But it also comes from obviously you. And when you felt it was the right time and it was the right time, you were you know, getting older, you weren't able to bounce around like you did. Let's talk a little bit about what you do now, because you have this powerful story that you now use to help other people. How, how did that come about? Because 
you know, sometimes, you know, people come out the other end, they go on to have a family, settle down, and then sort of leave that life behind. I mean, they don't forget it, but they leave it behind. You chose not to do that. What did you do? So, so, so what I do now, I didn't do straight away. Yeah, so, uh, so, so I wasn't one of them people that turned my life around and was ready to go work. <laughs> it wasn't happening for me, you know. I had uh, 56 offences, 18 convictions, been a dependent heroin user, had no CV, no education. Yeah, I weren't ready for work. Yeah, I wasn't ready for work. Uh, so what I did was uh, I just started volunteering, really, and I started doing two hours a week volunteering. Uh, and I was working with uh, a company that sort of like uh, done stuff with yachts and boats. And I also had a little thing as well where they'd done stuff with youngsters. And I just used to do two hours a week, yeah. It was the hardest two hours of my life, yeah, because I didn't know how to speak or how to be able to connect with any of these people, yeah, do you know. If it was talking about prison, crime and drugs, I was your man, yeah. But they were talking about like growing tomatoes, yeah, going on holidays and mortgages, yeah. It was just like, <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, but yeah, but what happened was I learned a lot about myself and I ended up going from two hours a week to 37 hours a week. Yeah, But I still didn't know what it was I wanted to do, but I knew that I liked working with the youngsters. And it was a 13-year-old girl that showed me my path. Yeah, And uh, what happened, we got off this boat one day and we're going to pay the morning fees and she went, I really like it when you're on the boat, Giff. She went, because uh, we can have a laugh, but when thing needs to be, things need to be serious, you pop her out as you do. And that was it, yeah. I thought I'm gonna go into youth work, yeah. And and that's what I did. So uh, so I kind of got myself a really good career in youth work. You know, I went from being a part time worker to a full time worker, and then a team leader within eighteen months. I then uh, got myself a promotion and a, and a job uh, within Portsmouth City Council. Uh, and Portsmouth City Council were my corporate parent, you know. So I ended up working within that organisation as a senior support worker with an organisation called Preventing Youth Offending Project. Um, and were you just relying at this point on your past experience and your interaction with these kids? Or were you now embarking on some sort of educational or programme courses to give you more more, more ability, if you like, to sort of articulate who you were and what you had to offer. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and it's, it's funny, actually, yeah, you say that because uh, coincidentally, yeah, uh, I made a decision not to tell anybody about my past. Yeah, so I didn't share it with any of the kids. Yeah, they just knew that you knew, but they didn't know how. Also, as well, I didn't share it with any of my team or my peers. Yeah, uh, my managers knew because of the DBS. Uh, and there was two reasons for that. Uh, one was that I needed to understand me, yeah, uh, and who I was, yeah. So not the the addict, the uh, uh, the criminal. I wanted to understand who is Geffen, and I also wanted people to get to know me for me, you know. So uh, so it was kind of like I put my story to bed, yeah. I put my story to bed, and yeah, I went off and got myself qualifications. I got myself math qualifications. Got myself English qualifications, uh, computer qu qualifications. I got an MVQ three, and then I got got an MVQ five in leadership and management within children's services. And my, my journey just kind of progressed, you know. And uh, we had a change of government in 2010, you know, uh, which meant that there was a lot of like money being like uh, taken out of different areas. Uh, and unfortunately, youth work was the first one to get hit. You know, so uh, so then I ended up like getting promotions and kind of working then in the substance misuse world, you know, uh, and I ended up uh, managing staff teams of 40. Yeah, staff teams of 40 uh, within public health, substance misuse. And it was about reducing health inequalities to the most deprived area of the city that I grew up within. You know, so it was quite, quite, quite big. Uh, it was like one point five million pound a year budget. They're giving me. 
yeah, to kind of uh, hold and do, you know, <laughs> which, uh, but yeah, so, but what happened is, uh, it was really crazy, actually. Uh, we, we had a secondment from a prison officer. Yeah, this is where I got the, the idea from, from a prison officer at Winchester Prison. And uh, one day he's just calling me, he's going, he goes, Geff, he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I went, what do you mean leaving? He went, yeah, he goes, not just the prison service, all of it. He goes, people don't change. He goes, it's just pointless, people don't change. And I really liked him, John Balderson his name was. And I went, oh, John, I said, do you fancy a coffee? And he went, yeah, yeah. So we gone out for, up for a coffee. And I said, uh, I said, so what wing did you work on Winchester? Yeah, and he went, oh, I worked on B-Wing. I went, oh, B-Wing. I said, what, was you on twos, threes, fours? He went, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then uh, I said, oh, do you, do you remember Mr. Crosland or Mr. Butcher? And, and he's like, oh. he went, did you work there then? I went, nah, there's something about my life you don't know. And then I shared my story, yeah, and his jaw at the floor, yeah. He was like, wow. He goes, I'd have never have known that gift. Yeah. And I said, the trouble with a lot of the jobs that we're in is we don't see our successes. Yeah. They don't come back through the gate in prisons, you know, but you do make a difference. And sometimes you'll make a difference in somebody's life and you won't even realize it because it may not be until a longer time that that actual bit of information that you've given them is going to have impact and they're going to use it, you know. Um, and that was where the idea of unlocking potential kind of came because I was starting to get disillusioned with what I was doing. So in the public sector, it was all tokenistic. Yeah, you know, it, it didn't really feel like I was able to be able to do what it was that I wanted to do. So yeah, so I, I pulled the story out from under the bed, <laughs> dusted it up, <laughs> and then uh, started on this journey. You know, and and, and that was uh, nearly six years ago now. And uh, you know, and, and I'm just about to go and do some work over in Australia. I'm doing some work uh, in America. You know, I do stuff across the UK. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just blessed. So, how would you describe? So, unlocking potential. We know how we've got there, but what does it do? What's your intention? What is it? Th- this work that you're going to be spreading uh, across the globe. So, so really, uh, so I work with both. I work with uh, both prison officers and people in prison. And it's all about breaking down the them and us narrative. Yeah, it's about that. Yeah. So when I work with a prison officer, I'll just simply say this. Yeah. I'll say, look, when you wake up in the morning, you wake up as a human being. You then put on your uniform, you go through the gates, you get your keys, you become a prison officer. When somebody wakes up on their bed in the morning, they wake up as a human being. They then put on their identity, their sentence, the door opens, and the two shall meet. But the one thing you both have in common is you're both human beings, yeah? And it's about people change people, yeah? So that's fundamentally what it is that I do, yeah? It's about being able to get people to come together, yeah? So for that, what I do is about rehumanizing yeah, people in prison to prison officers, yeah. Uh, but then when I do work with prisoners, yeah, I try to get them to learn to trust the system they fundamentally mistrust, yeah, okay, because they don't see the person, they just see the uniform, they just see the set of keys, they just see what's represented and beat them their whole life, yeah. So, and then also as well, what I do with prisoners as well is I try to break down uh, uh, their, their, their dependence on the system, 
Yeah, because what happens is you'll know is when you go to prison, you get a learned helplessness. Yeah, that learned helplessness then can then create being become an institutionalized. So I promote personal responsibility and about how it is that they can take more responsibility within their life, no matter how small it is in prison and how prison officers or chaplains or education or programs, how they can become their network. Because the reality is, as you know, your net worth is your network. Yeah. You know, your network is your net worth, yeah? So you can build a network within there. So that's kind of what it is that I do really, you know, is because the truth of the matter is them people up there can't fix it because they haven't got a clue, yeah? The people that can fix it are the people on the ground. But the way that they do that is by working together, yeah? Do you know, and actually if you've got a community where prison officers and prisoners are getting on well together, yeah, it's a much place safer and better place to be anyway. And and how responsive are they to that? Because it's such a a big space, isn't it? You know, lots of prisons do think differently. Officers have a different mentality. They themselves can be so scarred by their own experiences or the things that they witness or the way that they've been treated by prisoners that, you know, they have this embedded sort of anger towards prisoners. So they overlook the fact, as you say, that they're human beings and vice versa. How do you... How do you achieve success? I mean, it's obvious that if you get them working together, a lot can change. But how receptive are the prison service to what you're trying to do? The prison service at the moment, they know that it's good and it's needed. Uh, but whether they're willing to fund uh, and be able to create their environments is another is 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 is, is well, a then whole what does it take what what does it take when i mean there's financial support obviously and then there's access giving you access to the prison officers and the prison staff what does it take what 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 are your challenges so my challenges at the moment uh so at the moment the main challenge is covid yeah, uh, because nothing's in change uh, in, in prison, as you know, and, and they're still spending way too much time behind the door. Uh, but also as well, uh, a real issue in relation to recruitment. You know, so most prisons at the moment, uh, 60% of the prison staff are probably in within less than two years of service. So you've got the blind leading the blind. The average length of uh, a prison officer at the moment in the UK uh, is around four years now, I think. You know what I mean? If you go back, uh, I think it's only about, if you went back three or four years ago, it was nearly seven. Yeah. So it's nearly halved in a short space of time. And it's only kind of going to get worse, you know. So what what I believe is that, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done within the infrastructure of prisons, but it's going to cost money. It is going to cost money. Yeah. So for me, an idea, and I'll kind of give this to the prison system, is when we had the big massive cuts in 2010, yeah, we did lose a lot of good, experienced staff. Yeah. What I say is do a recruitment, yeah, to go and get them staff back, yeah, to get them staff back. But don't put them on the wings in uniform forms locking and unlocking yeah have them as coaches and mentors on the wings yeah so they're just to watch and observe yeah and then they can then train and develop the other officers so back in our days that's what like uh, this the principal officer and the senior officers that's what they would have done so we'd have these there and then actually you can then start to grow a stronger sort of like cohort of uh, of prisoners but prison officers but we also as well need to take care yeah, with prison officers, which we don't do. So when I went into this work, I was absolutely blown away. So I'm a, a qualified leader and manager. I've just sort of done a, a common, common purpose leadership, uh, global leadership program as well. And all of the services I've always worked in, we always give really good supervision to be able to give our staff time to be able to talk about what's going on both personally and professionally. Prison officers don't get supervision. 
Yeah, they don't get supervision. Yeah, so they're seeing violence on their peers. They're getting seeing violence from prisoner to prisoner. They're cutting people down. They're seeing people self-arming. All of this stuff, and they got nowhere that they're able to be able to take this on a on a monthly basis. Yeah, on a regular basis. So that's also why we're getting high levels of burnout, PTSD, mental health, and everything like that. What I believe what my new strategy is, yeah, uh, Raphael, what my new strategy is, is because uh, I've banged on all of the political doors, yeah. I've sat down with Joe Farrer, I've sat down with Robert Buckland, I've sat down with Rory Stewart, you name them, I've sat down with them, yeah. They are politically led, okay, they're politically led, yeah. So what I believe is we have to change the narrative of the public, yeah. All right. So at the moment, if we look at it, prison's primary purpose is to keep communities safe. Yeah. We don't keep communities safe just by locking people up. But the, the, the political line is that we're keeping communities safe by locking people up. No, what you're actually doing is you're actually making our communities more unsafe. Yeah, because what's happening is you're putting people in prison, you're doing nothing with them, you're making them more vulnerable from when they get out from when they went in. They're also more angry when they come out than when they went in. And what they're actually doing now is they're committing more crime and more victims. Yeah, but, if, but, but what you're saying is pretty obvious, and this is what frustrates me. And you're absolutely right in the sense that you know, the public's perception needs to change, the narrative needs to change. And you work in this world on a day-to-day basis. And I suppose lots of people believe that when people do end up in UK prisons or prisons around the globe, that they are getting rehabilitation where resources are available. They are being given new opportunities, new training, new education, new skills. But it's obvious that they're not because they're coming out, especially in this country, and they're going on to commit further crimes and cause mayhem in the community. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that that this is what's going on. And you talk about, you know, politicians only see the politics of it and the rhetoric of saying, you know, prison works, etc. Are we still at that point in in the criminal justice system and prisons? I'm going to say, yeah, yeah. So, how I expect this is one new task, yeah. So, remember, like, the Wizard of Oz, yeah, uh, and he pulls back the curtain, yeah. That's what you got to do. you got to pull back the curtain, yeah. Show the public the truth of what's really going on because they're led by the Daily Mail and all of the other stuff, yeah. I also realise and understand as well, this is not a short-term fix, yeah, but we need to create a campaign and momentum over a period of time to change the public narrative, yeah. Uh, I'm now going to quote Alistair Campbell, of all people, So I remember when I worked in the alcohol field, I went to this uh, alcohol conference, yeah, and we talked about how it was that we could change the relationship the UK has with alcohol, yeah, because it causes so much damage, yeah. And then what he said, he he then talked about, he said, well, he said, what you need to do is change the public narrative, yeah. He said, I'll give you an example, and you do that through campaign, he said, I'll give you an example. He said, think about smoking. He said, if I went back, yeah, to uh, uh, to uh, Fleet Street, yeah, twenty five years ago, and said, in twenty five years' time, you won't be able to smoke in a pub, in a on the train, in a taxi, or blah blah blah. They go, that would never happen, yeah. He said, but what it was was there was a campaign, yeah, that shifted and changed public perception, where smoke went went from acceptable to unacceptable, yeah. And then what happened was legislation and politicians had no choice but to change. This is what I believe we need to do with uh, the uh, with with the, with the, with the criminal justice. Yeah, is we need to change the public's opinion 
in relation to prisons. So if you look at Norway, they truly believe in their criminal justice system, so they don't mind paying for it. Yeah. At the moment, what the public see, yeah, is they're seeing videos of where they're seeing people on Xboxes, yeah, or having the time of their lives in prison, yeah, and all of this crap that's fed to them, and that's why they're saying, give them less. Punish them more, you know, so we just need to change the narrative. So, you know, I might not see the shift and change, but uh, if I can out be part of the momentum, then I'll be happy with that. Well, you know, for what it's worth, as you know, in my line of work, I go around trying to pull this curtain from prisons around the world, given a, and, and the response is from the viewers, overwhelmingly supportive of the idea of the work that you do and this whole idea that, wow, is that what really goes on in prison? Oh my God, we need to do more to improve the conditions. We need to do more to, to, to give these guys more opportunity, even the guys that they would often believe should be spending the rest of their lives in prisons. I can't believe I, I've just had my season six go out and there were two characters I met in a Moldovan prison who committed murder and the, the amount of messages I've had from people saying they want to support them by sending them parcels because they have absolutely nothing is indicative of this idea that the narrative needs to change and it is from the viewers and I, I get it from the audience both here in the UK and around the globe that now they're seeing what they've never been able to see before which is I would argue partly as much of the truth of what really goes on because you're hearing it you're getting the testimony from the individuals who are living it without judging them humanizing them and just looking at those conditions so there is and can be a, a huge change let me ask you this at the beginning of this interview you talked about you know the, the person you are how would you describe yourself today so how would I describe myself today I just I just describe myself as a, a really nice human being <laughs> And just a nice person, yeah, and and that's a big thing to say, yeah. So if I just explain, yeah, I remember like when I when I first went into a treatment program, yeah, somebody said like, you know, I needed to do these affirmations, yeah, because I just I just felt like I was like a piece of dirt, yeah. And he said, just look in the mirror and tell yourself three things that you truly don't believe in yourself, yeah. I remember I first looked in the mirror. I couldn't even hold my eyes. I couldn't stand what was looking back at me. I couldn't even look at myself. And then what I said, I used to say three things. The first thing I said was like, Geff, you're a really good person. You're a good person. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I said was, Geff, you deserve the good things in life. Yeah. Geff, you deserve the good things in life. And the third thing was, uh, Geff, you can be loved. And that's me today, yeah, is I'm just a good person, yeah, a good person. And, and what about, it's interesting that you, you say that, and it's quite emotional, actually. And, and what about what you talked about, that you didn't trust people, and I got the impression that you, you couldn't offer any love because you didn't have that maternal love from your parent. D do you love now? Can you love? Are you in a place where you can offer back what you're seeing yeah uh, i can love I, I i love so many people my my world is so rich and uh and it's funny actually is because i've gone from a place of complete no trust yeah where some people go to me guess you trust too much <laughs> and i'm like how can you trust too much yeah do you know because for me i just i just understand you yeah, that you know sometimes people are going to let you down it's okay yeah but my life is so much richer for trusting people do you know and uh i'm a granddad today i'm a father today i'm a brother today i'm an uncle today i you know i i i run my business i've got i've got i've got beautiful friends i've got a beautiful partner do you know uh 
my life is just filled with love. Yeah, it's just filled with love, you know. And 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 when I meet people in prison, as you will know yourself, Raphael, no matter who they are, I never ask them sort of really like what they're in for, how long they're doing. I just meet them with love, care, kindness, compassion, understanding. And I suppose that's that's just the person I am, you know. And and I'll just go back to what Harry said about what you see, you learn, what you learn, you practice, what you practice, you become. Yeah. I saw something different. Yeah. I saw something different in that man that gave me hope. Yeah. And seeing something different, yeah, I started to learn something new. Yeah. When I started to learn something new, I started to practice something different. Yeah, from practicing something different, I've become the man that you're speaking to today. And and that's it. And it's really good to hear. Last question from me, given this is called Second Chance Podcast. It sounds like you've had more than a second chance, but also you're working with people to try and give them. What does second chance mean to you? People often, and I say this quite a lot, you know, no one gave me a second chance. I took my life back, you know, being wrongly imprisoned, which is very different from your experience. So I, I challenge the perception, although I also agree with it. Of course I do. What does it mean to you, Gethin? I'm just going to say, first of all, yeah, I really feel for your story as well. And just feeling you able to be able to come to terms with everything that you've done and do what you do now is just incredible. Yeah, incredible. Thank you. You know, incredible. So for me, second chance, yes, yeah, second chance, I like, you know, I, I, there's this thing called fail, yeah. Fail stands for first attempt in learning. Yeah, it's four letters, isn't it? First attempt in learning. He had five yeah. fingers up for those who can't yeah. see this. <laughs> oh, yeah, for those that can't see this, yeah. First attempt in learning. I'm dyslexic. Well, I'll pretend I am. <laughs> anyway, uh, I also had uh, 50th attempt in learning. <laughs> but I remember there was a, a, a bloke called Wardle, yeah. Uh, he's no longer with us, yeah. And he worked frontline in, in, in a wet house, yeah. So where people were using, taking heroin, crack, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I was in that hostel a few times as well. And I remember when I was kind of like, uh, uh, I went working professionally. So he used to look after me. I'm now working alongside him professionally. And, and I'm like, how... How have you stayed on the front line for as many years as you have? Yeah, do you know what I mean? And uh, and he goes and keep seeing the same people keep coming back and back and back. Do you know what I mean? And then he goes, Geff, he goes, he goes, it's simple, really. He goes, when they tell me that they're going to change or it's different this time, he said, I'll believe them. He said, I'll believe them. He said, do you know the reason why I believe them? I went, no, what? He went, it might be the first time that they're telling the truth. First time they're telling the truth, yeah. And that's that window of opportunity, yeah. And that's what a second chance is about, yeah. Do you know what I mean? You know, is you don't know what's gone on for somebody in their life. You don't know what has led to them being where they are, yeah, okay. But just trust and believe in them, yeah. But the reality is as well, I'll say this with prison officers, yeah, is it's easier for us to do this with a dog yeah, than it is with a human being, yeah? So if you go to smooth a dog that's been beaten its whole life, it's going to meet you with snarling teeth. But if every day you go to that dog with some love, care, kindness, nurture, understanding, one day that dog's going to meet you with a wagging tail, yeah? And that's the same as with human beings. And that's what he did. Every single time he met that person, he met them with love, care, nurture, and understanding. You know, and uh, yeah, and that's what second chances are about. Kathleen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for sharing your story, insights, and experience. It really is 
powerful testimony, actually. And it's great that you're doing the work you did or are doing. So thanks so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview with Gethin on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, your family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast, so please go over to rate and review our episode and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. And if you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.